0: Good everyone. Good to see you. Um, my name is Pastor Lester Cruzat. I'm an assistant pastor here at ICC, and I just want to welcome just the friends and family and guests and Catalyst. Catalyst, you're here, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. So thanks for joining us. And um, uh, just to just to kick things off right away, um, as we've been exploring the Sermon uh, on the Mount, found in chapters five through seven of Matthew. Uh, We've been learning under the instructions of Jesus as how to live under the reign of God, otherwise known as the kingdom of God. Uh, From how we are to deal with anger, lust, and even divorce, uh, to our own anxiousness and our view and handle of money, Jesus shows how truly upside down uh, this kingdom truly is. We can glean through these chapters and almost Come out appalled, right? It's it's not just how the world works; it's not how life normally operates. Uh, as an old Puritan prayer puts it, the way down is the way up. To be low is to be high. A broken heart is a healing heart. Having nothing is to possess all. To give is to receive. Finding life and death, joy and sorrow, riches and poverty. To rule is to serve. Life and death wearing the crown is bearing the cross. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. It seems like, I don't know, every day is opposite day in the kingdom of God. Did you guys know that uh, January 25th was actually opposite day? Did you guys know? Yeah, I didn't know that either. But uh, apparently, opposite day is January 25th. And I was like, what in the, what actually happens? You know, I just had some random thoughts, like what happens on the opposite day. And I was thinking, you know, what if on opposite day, like when you flush the toilet, instead of the water going down, it actually goes up, right? And then, and then your reaction, like the universal reaction is, uh, right? Your eyes bugger, like, oh, my gosh, you're just in panic, right? You just don't know what to do, you know? Yeah, yeah just, just some random thoughts I had, like, but on opposite day, instead of panicking, you're just like... <laughs> yay yay and you're like you know dancing on the the water uh spilling over the toilet um yeah and that's i'll stop there because uh i have more things to say uh but we see this from the very beginning if you recall jesus kicks off his kingdom life lessons right he with a list of who is blessed known as the beatitudes found in matthew five to seven Um Matthew 5, verses 3 to 10, we read things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, and so on. So as we learned back at the beginning of last summer, yeah, the sermon series started actually last summer, the Beatitudes are not a list of virtues. It's not a list of requirements. They're not laws or prerequisites. But they are a description of the kind of people who are responding to Jesus' invitation to enter God's kingdom. Those who will receive and be used for the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be blessed, according to Jesus. Jesus intros his Sermon on the Mount immediately with the who's who of the kingdom. It's everyone, right? All, All are invited. There's no one that heaven would exclude. But you think you'd know who would gladly take this invite, right? If our mainstream culture and preferences had the choice to rewrite the Beatitudes, what would we write? Right? We would say, "Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are the powerful. Right? Blessed are the beautiful." When we think of the notables of the world, who we admire, right? What, who we tend to celebrate—the talented, the, the successful, the, the powerful—from athletes to actors. Right? We know who makes class president and who doesn't. We know who gets inducted into the Hall of Fame and who doesn't. We we know who gets the statue. And who doesn't? Jesus says, This is not who automatically makes my A list. My list draws the weak, the poor, and the forgotten. Yes, all can come, like all are called, right? But when it comes to the kingdom, you know, there is no discrimination. But it's the dropouts, the physically repulsive, the the losers of society, The, the rejected, the ones who are picked on or who are picked last. On the playground, the bullied, scoffed, the dismissed, and abused, these are the ones who respond to the invitation. These are the people, these are the hearts, these are the attitudes whose postures of those that receive the invitation card, and where it asks you, yeah, are you attending? They would always, without hesitation, check off the box, yes, yes, I'm coming, every single time, yes, I want to enter the kingdom, yes, I want want Jesus as my king, and check this out, Right. Look at this. Matthew, the author of the book of Matthew, right? Um, exhibits some intentionality as he lays out his gospel account. Because as chapters 5 and 7, 5 through 7, describes those who are the responders of the invitation and the followers of how they are to live and how to follow him and to live in this kingdom. Check this out. Chapters 8 and 9 goes about describing nine characters and episodes that gives clear pictures, stories, examples of what it looks like when the kingdom of God crashes into someone's life, no matter who and how hopeless the circumstances may be. These are real-life sermon illustrations showing the invited and the ones who take the invitation. Matthew is seeking to show specifically from the very society that his audience lives in as to to who among them are the blessed ones. And those who follow the kingdom, establisher and ruler, Lord Jesus, these are the ones who will experience the grace and power of God. A leper, a Roman soldier, a sick mother, demonized, paralyzed, blind, mute men, and even a deceased girl, right? And between three sets of these stories is the command, follow me, right, follow me. Matthew's point is clear. One can only experience the power of Jesus, his grace, by following him and becoming his disciple. And we will start off with the healing of a leper, the very first account of the unlikely encountering the kingdom. So let's offer this time up to the Lord together before we start. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, for many of us, this has been a, a pretty discouraging season. And so we ask you, Lord, um, we want to hear your voice deeply within our hearts. We don't want to be entertained. We don't, we don't want to see a show. We, we want to see, we, we're here for you. We're here to hear from you. And so we ask you, Lord, may your word do in us what you will. Bring about, Lord, uh, deep change in us as we gather here for, these, uh, for, this, uh, for this hour. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Matthew nine twelve to 13 says this. Uh, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no oh, I'm sorry. Where am I going? Sorry. Matthew 8, 1 to 4 says this. Um, the passage that we're studying. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Now, if there's anything these characters that Matthew covers in chapters 8 and 9 have in common is that they're broken and hurting, right? But, but, they, but, they, but not only that, but they know. They know they're broken and hurting. There's a big difference. And, you know, Jesus doesn't keep it a secret as to who he's after. Right? So in Matthew 9, he's, uh, you know, reclining with his disciples but also tax collectors, right? prostitutes and sinners. And the Pharisees are looking at this and they're like, why does your teacher do that? To the disciples, And, and Jesus overhears, and but he says this: Right, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who seek, who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The sick man that approached Jesus certainly knew he was sick, in need of a doctor. Leprosy was a devastating disease characterized by you know discolored patches of skin ulcers on um on the soles of feet uh swelling and lumps on the face you know it's hard to believe but uh pastor steve um you know he preached on this almost like 10 years ago in the count of luke right and he he actually showed a lot of mercy but not showing any pictures of what this disease looks like i'm not so merciful so here no just kidding all right uh, opposite day so um i'm merciful i'm merciful too um Leprosy um, known, is known as uh, Hansen's disease today, right? And in, in, in Luke's parallel of this account in chapter 5, um, he exhibits his medical expertise and he says, the man was full of leprosy, right? He was full of leprosy, which meant that disease had run its full course. So, so on top of the physical sores and swelling of the skin, there are now visible open wounds and serious physical deformities. Again, leprosy, known as Hansen's disease, is not a rotting infection as it once was commonly thought, but it was the bodily disfigurement that is caused, right, is actually caused by the failing of the body's ability to feel pain. Right? The, the body's warning system of pain is actually rendered useless. The disease brings a numbness to the extremities, right, as well as to the ears, the eyes, and nose. It's the utter destruction of the body. But where does that come from? It comes from everyday physical activities, right? such as maybe like your cooking. But you can't feel, right, if, you're, if your hand's like accidentally in a fire or, or washing your face with, with water temperatures a little too high or holding a, a garden tool, right, too, too, too hard and too, 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 um, too tightly or even simply walking on a broken limb. In time, repeated unfelt trauma like this leads to hands and feet becoming what like mere stumps. Doctors call this disease a, a, painless, a painless hell and it, it truly is. The poor man, this leper, Jesus met as he came down the mountain after preaching his sermon, had not been able to feel for years, and, and his body was mutilated from head to foot, and it was foul, he was foul-smelling, he was rotting. Not only was this man suffering physically, but there was a social level of suffering as well. Look, Leviticus thirteen, forty five to forty-six. The, the leprous person who was a disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean, he shall remain unclean as long as he has a disease. He he is unclean. Right? He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Right? You know, we, we all have an innate longing to belong, you know, somewhere by someone. But for this leper, that longing would never be quenched. He, he was ostracized from society, right? forced to assume a disheveled appearance, having to yell out words, unclean, unclean, wherever he went. Whenever he came into a certain range of others, right? And any exposure or contact with him, the thing or person would be also considered unclean, right? Jo- Josephus, a Jewish historian, described the treatment of lepers as if they were, in effect, dead men. You know, and, and on top of all this, right, all this all this physical suffering and emotional pain, also came the spiritual torment of being society's parable of sin. They were considered an outward and visible sign of spiritual corruption from the inside out. They were, they were considered one of the worst of sinners, and that's what mainly caused their horrible plight, or so they thought. You know, this is someone that would be forever barred from worship in the temple. Okay? This, this is an individual that God would never accept as his own. He was unclean, outwardly, inwardly, unclean, through and through. Being unclean was his identity. This is why the leprous man asked to be cleansed. Not just cured, but cleansed. You know, what I want us to consider is the multiple dimensions of brokenness. It spans and affects every aspect of what makes us human, from the physical, psychological, to the emotional and spiritual layers of our own existence. The curse of sin and our malfunction stretches into not only what we do, but what we think, what we believe, and what we feel. You know, sometimes these layers can consist of our own sin and fallenness. Other times it could be due to other people's sin and brokenness inflicted on us. And yet other layers can consist of just consequential traumatic damage caused by everyday occurrences from this pain-filled world. Brokenness has many layers. The leprous man knew all too well the layers of his own brokenness. So the question is, do you? Do you? Um, In this movie uh, called Molly's Game, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the movie, Mo- this movie, uh, Molly's Game, is based on the true story of Molly Bloom, once a talented skier uh, with Olympic aspirations and potential whose dreams are pretty much dashed right, by a terrible accident at the Olympic trials, causing her to crash. Okay. Uh, becoming seriously injured, and in turn, she permanently retires from skiing. She moves to L.A., wanting to take a break before going to law school, and gets a cocktail waitressing gig. Uh, She's noticed for her intelligence and and abilities by a producer, and and is hired as his assistant. This producer is actually involved in hosting high-stake poker games and asks her to organize one. So the guests include famous famous actors, business moguls, and some of the richest and most powerful men in the world. After the game, she gets tipped thousands of dollars, and Molly finds out how lucrative this career could be. So Molly making Mad Bank, goes from running the games to making it her own. And fast forward, us, um, using her drive, wit, and ingenuity, Molly eventually births the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game. From celebrities to the Russian mob, right, all, all are playing her games. From a shattered athlete to leading an underground poker empire. Right? The, the movie goes on into her own personal issues and actually her deep wounds. In a moving scene, in the midst of her legal troubles, in the midst of even her arrest, you know, and getting caught, uh, her perfectionistic and accomplished therapist father, Jerry, seeks her out. He tracks her down at a skating rink, and Molly thinks, all right, here we go, all right. She, She thinks she's about to receive another lecture from her father about being, about her irresponsible behavior. Instead, he says rather bullishly, all right, all right, look. We're gonna do three years of therapy in three minutes. He looks to give her answers, answers that reveal the very bottom of the hurt she's lived with most of her life, namely her relationship with him and how the troubled relationship fueled her drive to run these high stake poker games. But to find the answers, she had to ask the questions she longed to find answers to, but was too afraid to ask. He tells her, You have to ask it, you've got to ask the questions. She had to ask the question she longed to find the answers to, but was too afraid to ask. You have to ask it. After some hesitation, Molly asks, Why didn't you like me as much as my brothers? And one thing can assume, oh, she ran this whole poker operating ring to outdo her brothers and to prove something to her dad, right? But it actually goes deeper than that. He He affirms her saying that it only appeared at times that I liked them more. It only appeared Molly responds in anger, and she doesn't believe him. And then he goes on to say, You know, Molly, I knew you knew. He's like, I knew what? What are you you talking about? It's like, that I was unfaithful to mom. Molly said, No, I didn't know until I was 20 years old. It's like, Jerry goes on, No, you knew since you were five years old. You knew I was unfaithful, but you couldn't make sense of it at that age. I knew you knew, and that's how I reacted to the shame by treating you differently than all your brothers, and in turn, you reacted by seizing contempt for me. Molly carried a contempt of her dad for most of her life, not just because of observed favoritism of her brothers, but from her dad, but because deep inside of Molly was her traumatized, five-year-old self who subconsciously was responding appropriately towards her father's sin, with anger, betrayal, distrust as she grew up. And with the unearthing of the decades of secrets and hurt, Jerry's confession of shame and his love and care for his daughter, he tells her, none of this is your fault. None of this is your fault. Taking her age-long burden off her shoulders, and at that point came the reconciliation between a father and a daughter. Now, listen, the point of the illustration is not to dissect who's to blame, right? That it's all her father's fault and that she's the innocent victim uh, as to why she pursued an illegal career. The point is, brokenness has a lot of moving parts. Brokenness has many layers underneath Molly's drive and ambition, and the weight of thinking everything was her fault was a poker game empress. Underneath a successful therapist, and below Jerry's cold demeanor towards his daughter over the years, was a man who was full of shame. Molly finally got to see her deep, motivations her hurt her darkness how far this really went she decided to come face to face with it to find healing she just had to ask her dad the hard questions the right questions she had to dig and find out what's below so what are we to do with our sin and brokenness sometimes we're called to dig and know how deep it goes Scottish pastor Robert McMurray, Murray McShane said this, Learn much of your own heart, and when you have learned all you can, remember you have seen but a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. Because, you know what, it's not always easy to see, right? It's not always easy to see as a skin lesion or a gash. It's, it's just a, it's just a, it's, that's just a symptom, right? It's, it's just a glimpse of what else is truly going on inside, It's not about just trying to control your white-hot anger. It's not about just overcoming your unceasing sadness. It's not about pushing yourself out of your apathy and hopelessness. Sometimes it's not enough to try to just change unfavorable knee-jerk emotions and behavior. Yes, the kingdom of God will at times call us outwards towards difficult places and people where the kingdom has yet to invade, but the kingdom can also call us inwards to a journey deep within ourselves The kingdom can call us inwards to a journey deep within ourselves. For many of us, our exploration of our own brokenness can be so shallow sometimes, right? Never getting to the hurt beneath the hurt or the stories under our brokenness. I'm asking you, would you be willing to go down the rabbit hole of your own brokenness and sin and trust Jesus, right, in that journey, A journey where the healing can only come from an exposing of a hidden wound. Where not only healing can occur, but, but maybe true transformation. Right? The tendency of our hearts is just not to go there, right? It could be due to just blaming the external. Right? It's, it's because of this person or that circumstance that I'm like this. Right? Or blind pride. No, no, I can, I can handle this. I can control this. or right? I can do better. I can be better. Right? But you just find your efforts are so futile. In changing your own ways. Right? Or fear, right? Or maybe it's fear. It's too ugly. It's too hard. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to find when I go in and lift up the hidden layers of how truly deep my brokenness goes, right? It, it's too uncertain. It's too unknown. Or shame. It could be so great. Right? You might be thinking, what's wrong with me? Everything, what's wrong with me? Everything is wrong with me, right? I can't talk to anyone about this. I, no one wants a monster like me. Whatever the heart struggle is, to look in with depth. Sometimes until you do, until you choose to uncover the face, until you choose to uncover and face the story beneath your sin, until you are able to see and name the narratives behind your sin, there will be no true healing found for you. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In those places where we refuse to journey, there is no power of grace encountered, just fear and shame. These are the places where we think the kingdom cannot move into, cannot touch, because it's just too dark, it's just too hopeless. One of those places are within the very walls of our own homes, with the people who are closest to us those that see who we really are day in and day out. That was the place for me, the sight that I thought I could never see Jesus reign. My shame and fear at times keeping me from looking in, getting help, and in turn finding that my own brokenness was not only crushing me, it was crushing my wife, and it was crushing my children. I heard it once said that the problem is not that we sin, the problem is that we don't talk about it. So let's talk about it. Ever since me and my family's arrival in ICC in 2018, first as attenders, then members, then coming on staff, these past few years, you have journeyed with me in my season of wilderness and struggle. Almost every sermon, time of sharing with our life group, individuals, with staff, pastors, elders, has been almost like a chronological account of the ongoing uncovering of my own brokenness. My deepest shame was my relationship with my young daughter, Hannah. If there was anyone that saw the untamed monster come out, the blind rage, the many occurrences of disproportionate anger towards perceived offenses, it was her. In one of the very first sermons at ICC under a subheading that read, My Greatest Shame, I read a journal entry titled, A Resurfacing Monster, back in April 25th, 2019. It read this. I felt so angry, bad, disrespected when I felt that Hannah was not listening to, to me. Right. For some reason, she gets the worst of me when I believe she exhibits such behavior. I say I believe or when I perceive it because it's not always the case. She isn't always mean to be disobedient. It's it's usually a reaction, a response with all that is going on in her. It's her reaction to whatever negative emotion is brewing up within her due to an unfavorable event. Right? But I can't always see that. I, and, and she gets the meanest side of me. You know, here I am snarling at a four-year-old who I, who I feel did the worst thing she could ever do to me and not do what I say. Why is that? Why, why such a strong reaction? Why is she touching down what is she touching down in my heart? Why do I lash? What, what am I trying to protect? What message do I think she's attacking me with? A message that goes right into my flesh-produced identity. Why can't I show Hannah more grace, more gentleness, patience? Why does, why does junk come out instead of fruit towards her? What have I not encountered and released upon the Lord? I get flooded. I can't take it. Like, Lord, help me, help me to look in There, when I feel disrespected by Hannah, when she doesn't do what I say, when she's being disobedient, why am I so mad? Why am I so mad? Do I not see her emotions as valid? Why why is it interpreted as automatic rebellion against me when she reacts that way? I can't can't seem to accept any other possible narrative. My emotions can get so overwhelming. I can't perceive any other motive. My emotions are so strong. They debilitate me to no end. I can't connect with my daughter's strong emotions because I have my own that I'm dealing with. It feels like an impossible fight. It feels like an impossible fight. The journal entries ends there, but my wilderness continued for another two plus years. I recall times begging Hannah with tears, please do what I say, please, because, uh, because I was so fearful that the rage would arise with an endowser. It was getting so chaotic and so dangerous that There was even a point where Grace and my wife even talked about taking the kids away until things changed. my life I felt like my life and family were just falling apart. My wilderness from the past three years seemed to intensify, especially during the latter part of last year. From failing time and time again, from being a safe place for my kids and a dependable, trustworthy husband, I continued to grow in cynicism and deteriorating faith towards God and the church. To being diagnosed with mild depression and anxiety, taking me to the deepest pits of apathy, despair, and loneliness. And hopelessness where at times I wanted to quit and join the many other pastors that have stepped down from vocational ministry. I felt powerless, useless, stuck. I stopped believing that God changed people because he certainly wasn't changing me. The leper in the passage is an example of what the Beatitudes considers as blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, their, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means to be rendered useless, worthless, worth something that someone, ha- someone that has nothing to offer. Right? And that's where I was. Right? That's, that's how I felt. But how in anyone's right mind am I blessed? Because all I sensed was that I was cursed. Right? I didn't know how far down and buried I really was, until I got out, right? until I miraculously just got out. Right? Just this past December, I woke up one day and I felt different. Right? I felt free. I felt like I could breathe again. Right? The negative feelings and voices in my head, just, it was just silent. Right? There was peace. Uh, it was, the quiet was just, it, it felt so deafening. Right? It, was, it was a state that I'd forgotten because it's been so long. Getting up from bed, I remember making my way to Hannah's room, waking her, only to stare for a good while because she looked different. I didn't see a threat all of a sudden. I didn't see a trigger to my anger. I didn't see her, someone who was unsafe. Like, I saw her. I saw, I saw Hannah. I saw Hannah for who she really is. I saw her for who God created her to be, my daughter that needed a father. And I've always wanted to protect, to provide, to be unhindered in my affection and, and interactions with her. But now, for the first time, I felt like it was doable. I felt like a fog that lay between me and her ever since her first few years of life was being lifted. And when I took her and embraced her, I was able to. I was able to hold her not only with my arms, but with my entire heart. And it's been that way ever since. Matthew 8. Verse 3 to 4. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. I will be clean. And immediately, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You know, it felt like Jesus took my leprous heart and just cleansed it. But was it, is, but was it that? Is that what really happened? How did this happen? Right? In talking and reflecting upon this healing miracle uh, to grace my wife about it, as well as my counselor, I I was reminded that what else the three years of wilderness consisted of. It consisted of key relationships from close friends, my journey group, family, fellow pastors, elder staff, life group, a loving and patient wife that would listen whenever I was on the brink. What else did the three years consist of? Facing forgotten trauma and broken relationships, the countless hours of counseling and therapy helping me to go deep into my past and unearth my dark and forgotten stories behind the pain. The years of hard and tiring work in discovering, facing, confessing, through the layers of my brokenness and sin, at times feeling like, with every step forward, was two steps back. The hundreds of prayers lifted up for me, Grace, Hannah and Joseph, and the small glimpses of God's faithfulness, His faithful presence. In his still small voice, telling me in some of my darkest times, just keep going. Keep going. The narratives, the hidden stories of my own brokenness were being uncovered, identified, confessed, and healed. All in conjunction, all in conjunction, all in cooperation with the union, with the exposing, in union with the exposing and sanctifying work of the spirit within me in cooperation with the divine work that God wanted to do on the deepest core of who I am and is still doing. Verse 16 to 17. I'm sorry. Uh, Dean Ortland says this in his book, Deeper. For he is sending us down into honesty and sanity. He wants us to see our sickness so that we can run to the doctor. He wants us to get healed. Fallen human beings enter into joy only through the door of despair. If you are not growing in Christ... One reason may be that you have drifted out of the salutary and healthy discipline of self-despair. I'll I'll close this with this question, okay? What is all this self-despair, digging, confessing, surrendering, healing, all amounting to? After Jesus heals the leper, he then instructs him on what to do next. Verse 4, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus was telling the healed man to follow the instructions prescribed in Leviticus 13-14, instructions for validating that the former leper is indeed healed from his disease and free to return to the rest of society. The priest would examine the skin, give witness and confirmation that the disease was gone. The formerly sick would then present a sacrificial gift to God in thanksgiving for being cured. This healed man could now return to society, restored physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. You know, this past week before going to bed, you know, I spotted a small, a small card in an envelope next to my bedside. It was from Hannah. Right? And she drew pretty pictures on it and And she actually wrote a message on the card inside of it, and it read this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You're all of it, right? Yeah, you're all of it. After reading it, I crumbled with tears and utter thanksgiving. For Hannah to see fruit, right, even just. Even just a little bit of Christ in me. Right? Even snapshots of love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. <laughs> she forgot faithfulness, right? But <laughs> <laughs> what an encouragement, right? What an answered prayer. I never thought I could ever receive a card like this from her. Hannah became my priest, even for that moment, affirming and confirming the great work that Christ is doing in me, right? restoring me towards the likeness of Christ. So, so I'll ask it again, right? What is all this self-despair, digging, confessing, surrendering, healing, amounting to? Right? You know, It's about showing good fruit. Right? It's about the fruit of the Spirit becoming who I was intended to be, becoming more like Christ i'm being changed i'm being restored the kingdom of god it really is truly here it's time it's time to present my own right my own sacrificial gift to god right thanksgiving for the ongoing cleansing work he's doing in me like you know the giving of my life as a child of god pastor father husband of god most high that's my i can only give my life right that's my only proper response (laughs) am i now a complete husband father pastor no way Uh uh-uh Far from it, but I can testify before you all that I'm not the same. I'm not the same. Christ is growing me, He's changing me, and if He can change me, He can certainly change you. Look, sometimes the call of Christ, sometimes the kingdom work takes you inwards rather than outwards, and requires a faith as you venture into the depths of your own broken story. My question to you is do you know how deep your brokenness goes? And do you have the courage to face it, deal with it, and allow Jesus to have access to all of it? That is the healing touch, that his healing touch may be encountered, that it is there that you will find yourself in the territory of his kingdom. As the first beatitude says, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.